Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're discussing international efforts to inhibit global climate change with Cristiana Figueres, the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Cristiana, thanks for joining us. Hi, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. Recently, a report was released by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They essentially escalated what they had previously said was a very likely finding that humans were causing climate change. Now it's extremely likely. Uh, what does that change actually mean for you know the UN negotiations going forward? Well, the fact that we humans have caused climate, I really don't think has been much of a question. They they have to be very careful in uh, in the way they worded, but uh, bottom line, uh, we have actually caused climate change through the burning of fossil fuels and through deforestation over the past at least a uh, hundred years. What is um, what is defining about the recently released report of the Intergovernmental Panel? on climate change is the fact um, that they are also saying that everything that we knew about climate before actually has been underestimated, that the negative effects of climate are going to be more frequent, that they're going to be more intense, um, and that we will be experiencing them sooner. That is the, that is the alarm clock moment, the alarm clock message um, that we have uh, with the release of this report, because there is no doubt now that we absolutely have to escalate our uh, actions to address climate change. An inconvenient truth was a big moment for climate change. Um, that was quite a while ago now. And ever since, we've been hearing repeated warnings on climate change. It's coming. It's going to be a problem. At what point does that become a message that's too repetitive that people just don't pay attention anymore? Well, it, it is uh, actually kind of dumb to continue saying that climate is coming. And it's dumb because climate is here. Because uh, those uh, citizens who live in New York City experienced Sandy. Because those farmers in the Midwest uh, were wiped out uh, by the droughts, droughts in the Midwest. So why do we continue to say that climate change is coming? Climate change is here. It is already affecting citizens in the United States as well as citizens in every other country. The question is, how quickly can we make the link between the extreme weather events that we're experiencing all over the world and the catalyzing effect that climate has on those effects and then pass from understanding that to action. And to action, I mean not a doom and gloom scenario of it's going to be a horrible world because we're going to have to give up all our comforts. I'm actually talking about a much more positive world in which we will all be able to generate and consume energy in a much more efficient way and in a much more productive way. So it's actually a good future. Now, there are many people who think the approach of reducing emissions may not be the best way to combat climate change, instead focusing on ways to mitigate its impacts and just plan for it, essentially. Why is it important to focus on emission standards instead? We actually have to do both. We have to do both because um, 
reduction of emissions and adaptation or planning for the negative effects are actually intimately linked, although in inverse relationship to each other. So the longer that we delay the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, the more impacts we're going to have and the more costly is going to be our adaptation to those impacts. So we do have to reduce emissions in order to avert the worst impacts of climate and in order to bring down the cost of a new life that we will have to create that is already in the context of climate change. So we have to do both because we have to reduce in order to bring down the cost, but we also have to already begin to adapt because many of the events are already upon us. So in November, the uh, UN climate change uh, uh, negotiations will continue in Warsaw. As of right now, it seems the Kyoto Protocol is only covering something like 10 or 12 percent of overall global emissions. How can you design something that will actually be viable going forward? I believe it's supposed to um, start in 2020, correct? Yes, correct. Um, the, the Kyoto Protocol, as you say, only covers 10 to 12 uh, 12% of global emissions, and that is why it needs uh, a complementary legally-based instrument that is actually going to be applicable to all countries that is going to cover 100% of uh, global emissions. How to do that is exactly the challenge that governments have set for themselves, how to um, build and design a legally based construct that does two things. First, it harnesses all of the action that is already occurring because there is much action already occurring to bring down emissions and to adapt to the inevitable effects. But also, what we do know is that the sum total of all of the action that is currently underway and currently planned even that sum total is not going to get us to the required amount of emission reductions that would guarantee that we will not go over the already established limit of two degrees temperature rise. So this construct that they're working on needs to do two things. It needs to harvest what is already there, what is already planned, and it needs to catalyze future efforts to continually move toward increasing levels of carbon efficiency and low carbon so that we eventually will be able to move into a very, very low carbon society. Part of the reason why Kyoto is only covering 10 to 12 percent um, is really because uh, a lot of industrialized nations have pulled out. Um, what was the problem with Kyoto that can be solved with, with a new agreement? Um, that is correct. The United States uh, never ratified the first commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol. It was ratified by all other industrialized countries. Um, and then in the second commitment period, which is where we are now, um, that takes us to 2020, um, the countries that you have mentioned have, uh, have pulled out. The reason why they have pulled out is because they recognize um, that on the one hand, industrialized countries must absolutely take a leadership role because it is the industrialized countries, in particular the United States, that have the major historical responsibility 
responsibility for having emitted um, most of these greenhouse gases in the future. And certainly, they have the greatest capacity to contribute to the solution. But on the other hand, there is also the other reality that given the fact that some developing countries called the emerging countries stand on the verge of the most accelerated economic growth that they will experience if they do not decouple their economic growth from greenhouse gas emissions, they will also contribute in a major way to greenhouse gases. So there is there's both realities, both the past reality of responsibility, but also the future possibility um, of developing countries contributing in a major way. And that is why some countries feel, well, in that case, we need an instrument that is actually going to cover all countries so that everybody can be in a um, in a fairer, more predictable um, framework that allows all countries to contribute their maximum solution. Do you mean by an instrument, do you mean a single standard globally or? No, I mean a legal instrument um, that hasn't been defined yet, mm -hmm. um, but that does have to provide for the legal and operational framework and the methodological rigor that is necessary to be able for everybody to know, well, our country's actually meeting their commitments under that instrument or not. So it, it will be a complex um, instrument that is being designed. But the good news is that they're actually on track. The governments have set themselves very clear timeline with milestones to come to that construct. Um, and they're on track. Um, now in Warsaw, Poland, at the end of this year, um, they will be um, looking already at the initial framework and the initial elements of this design. And then by next year in Lima, Peru, they will have to put on the table the draft legal agreement to then be adopted in 2005 in Paris. How do you balance the needs of countries like China and India to want to bring their pe billions of people, really, out of poverty and into a middle class uh, with the fact that most of that is going to be driven by fossil fuels because that's where the technology is today? Well, but that's exactly the heart of the exciting transformation that we're on the verge of, okay? So let me just give you an example. Um, Kenya. Uh, has 15% um, of their population electrified. 80% of their population has a cell phone. That means they have used the technology of the cell phone to completely leapfrog these stupid landlines that we used to have. Um, and that technology has allowed them to bypass the landline technology and be able to communicate and to be much more productive citizens, even with the fact that only 15% of them are electrified, okay? That is a very, very good example of what needs to happen in energy. It's an example from the information technology, but it is illustrative of what happens needs to happen in the energy technology because we need to help support developing countries to bypass all of this fossil fuel energy generation technology that is frankly obsolete technology, just like landlines are obsolete. And we need to help them to continue their economic growth. China, India, Brazil, everybody needs to bring their population out of poverty, no questions asked. 
but they do not need to do that on the basis of a very carbon-intense, fossil fuel-intense economic growth. They can do it with a much more low-carbon growth. And that's the exciting part about the transformation. So do you expect countries that do have a increasing emissions footprint, like uh, China is a big example, India as well, do you expect them to fall under the same standards as, say, uh, other uh, uh, emerging nations? What we're already seeing in China is that there is a, a much more heightened awareness about the negative consequences of their emissions than there is in the United States, for example, um, and that uh, there already is legally binding policy to uh, increase the carbon efficiency of their economy and that they are not only meeting but exceeding those targets. They understand that they have a huge contribution to play in climate change. And they also understand, by the way, that it is in their national interest to control their emissions because we have all heard stories in the past few months about the very, very difficult pollution, uh, pollution situation that um, was in Beijing. So even just for national health reasons, they need to bring down their emissions. That is what is actually a very, very um, important win-win situation between climate. Any measure that you do on climate has very clear, Nash at the national level or at the community level, very clear by um, benefits, collateral benefits that do help these countries to move forward in their own sustainable development. How China is going to do this, honestly, I do not think that they're going to follow the path of the United States or of Europe. I think China is going to chart its own course. They will bring their population out of poverty. They have already brought many of their population out of poverty, and they're going to do it in ways that will be models to us. Certainly in the United States, there's a healthy amount of, of skepticism about climate change, despite the science proving it. Um, how much of your job is to reiterate that message that this is this is fact at this point? This is actually happening. Um, well, the IPCC's job is to um, develop the the science, or to actually to review the science that has come out, and to bring it together into a coherent compendium, and to communicate on the science. So there are um, there are um, uh, cousins, uh, and uh, that is their job. Uh, we in the UNF Triple C, we need to take the input from science and translate it into a policy response. That is our job. That is what we support countries to do. That, of course, doesn't mean in the least that we ignore the science, because the science is precisely the, um, the reason why the climate convention was created, is precisely to meet the challenge of science. Um, but we do not develop the science. We um, shepherd the process of the policy response, which frankly is a much, much slower process than the science. And part of the challenge here is the difference in the pace, because the science is telling us you are running out of time. And we all know that policy, whether it be at national or at international level, is actually a gradual process. So that is really the conundrum that we're in. We would all love to have policy 
developed immediately. But that's not the way it happens because policy needs to be developed on the basis of what is possible at a national level, what is legislated at a national level, what is regulated at a national level, what the private sector sees as their possibilities to leapfrog. And all of that opens up the political space for international policy response. Well, Christiana Figueres, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you, Matt. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Policycast.